This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. This week in our 246th episode, we have a bunch of news, including a new species of Cetacosaurus and new finds coming in from all over the place. Hooray for the summer dig season. Oh yeah. <laughs> it's a good time to be out digging. It is. But these are always like the preliminary. We found something. And get back to us in a year or two once we scrape it all out of the rock in a lab and figure out what it is, sort of news items. (laughs) And we also have Dinosaur of the Day, Nigerosaurus. I also want to mention real quick that we're traveling, so we're recording a couple episodes early, and so that means there'll probably be a landslide of news in episode 248 and or 249, because that's when we get back and we'll have to rapidly catch up. And then episode 250 is going to be a special Bone Wars episode, which has been requested lots of times. And Sabrina has been digging through tons of books. Luckily, she's an incredibly fast reader. So she's been reading like a book a day (laughs) about the Bone Wars, getting ready for it. There's a lot to know. There is. She's been sharing little tidbits with me, but she's going to be our Bone Wars expert from now on, I think. (laughs) Before we get into the episode we always like to thank some of our patrons and this week we'd like to thank scotty megan dixon kessler rhinosaurus morgan eklov Lori, risa kelly manda laurasaurus timmy james pasco gabe courtney and trx dinosaurs yeah thank you everybody for all of your support we really appreciate it and it helps us keep this podcast going and it's also great to just see the community grow and people interacting on discord and in our patreon posts and all that so thank you and if you want to join this growing group of amazing people then check out our page at patreon.com slash i know dino jumping into the news our first item is a new satakasaurus species as promised it was written by james napoli and others and published by the american museum of natural history which is not surprising because they have tons of Cetacosaurus specimens from all their work in Mongolia over the years. The new species is named Cetacosaurus amidaba, and Cetacosaurus, as Osborne put it, means parrot-beaked saurian. So one of those weird things, because saurus sometimes means lizard, like it's supposed to, and other times means saurian, like misclassified lizard, which is now dinosaurs. Anyway, the species is named after Amidabai Buddha, which is, quote, 
the principal Buddha of Pure Land Buddhism and is highly venerated in Mongolia, end quote. There wasn't any explanation beyond that, so I don't think there's anything specific about this Satakasaurus that makes it Buddha-like. It's more of like a local, traditional type of name that we see now and then. This Satakasaurus is from Ondai Sire in southern central Mongolia, and there is one other Satakasaurus that was found there, but I don't think it has a species name. I think it's one of these Satakasaurus something because we don't have a great find with it. And this one's estimated to be about 125 to 130 million years old, putting it on the older side for a Satakasaurus. Is that one of the reasons it's its own species? Maybe. I think so in that it's in its own area, but really they did some phylogenetic analysis comparing characteristics, and I think that's what really made it its own. Part of it, too, is that it's a little bit big for a Satakasaurus. It's almost as big as Satakasaurus major which is named that because of its large size, and Satakasaurus sibiricus, which were both about the same size and are on the larger size for Satakasaurus, although the paper that named Satakasaurus major estimated that it was about 14 kilograms or 30 pounds, and that's compared to about 12 kilograms for the quote-unquote small type of Satakasaurus mongoliensis. So there's not really a huge difference. It's not like we're talking about triceratops here. It's like a giant ceratopsian. It's just like a slightly bigger, small cetacosaurus. It's still like half the size of protoceratops. So it's a, it's a small little guy, probably still less than a meter long. They also think that cetacosaurus amidaba was still growing, but nearly done growing. So when they cut it and they looked at the lags, it's like they're getting closer spaced together at the end. So it looks like it's slowing down, but it would have been about as big as cetacosaurus major and sibiricus when it was fully grown. So it's not going to be like the new biggest because that probably would have been the title otherwise, and they would have made it like super major cetacosaurus or something. This is just like another sort of biggish cetacosaurus. The specimen includes a pretty good set of bones. They have a nearly complete skull, and really, to any casual observer, it's a complete skull. It looks really great. They also have some of the jaws, they have some ribs and vertebrae, and they have most of a foot, including three of four complete toes, which I thought was pretty cool looking. It was printed near life-size on my computer screen, and it made the foot to about the size of a human hand. So it's it kind of fun. I kept holding my hand up, estimating like, what would it be like if my hand was like a Satakasaurus foot? <laughs> so they had kind of like large feet for the size like you normally see in birds and dinosaurs. Like big bird feet? <laughs> <laughs> kind of. They had, I guess this one had four toes though, so mm. a little bit different. They also found nine gastroliths. The largest one is about a square inch by a half inch thick, and then the smallest one is about a quarter that size. So they're relatively large given how small the animal is. Could seriously do some grinding up of food. They got a really nice endocast of the skull too. You can see the inner ear, which appears to be slanted down quite a bit. So they think its head was probably slanted down too. We've talked about that with some of the sauropods before too, when they're low browsers because the orientation of the inner ear is kind of what helps you stay balanced. So at rest, you expect it to be kind of in a neutral, horizontal position. It's kind of a fun way to look at things. And Paul Serino did a pretty thorough analysis of Cetacosaurus a few years ago, and they quote him in this paper saying, Cetacosaurus has become the most well-known of all non-avian dinosaur genera, with hundreds to thousands of specimens discovered in China, Mongolia, Russia, and perhaps Thailand. End quote. 
which I hadn't heard before. That's an insane number of individuals, perhaps thousands. <laughs> From those, researchers have named 18 species and about 10 are still considered valid. Sabrina mentioned this way back in our Cetacosaurus dinosaur of the day. Compared to other Cetacosaurus species, Amidaba has a longer snout and the cranium bulges out a little bit in one spot. Some of the other ones have big cheek horns that are really prominent or other little bumps and differences and beak curvature and things like that. But they all generally look pretty similar from a casual observer perspective. The authors also say, quote, Cetacosaurus is the most specious non-avian dinosaur genus. With all these species in a single genus, it's sort of a different type of lumping <laughs> than we usually talk about with lumping and splitting, because usually we're talking about lumping and splitting into a different species or maybe a genus and species. But in this case, there have been just tons of species jammed into the Cetacosaurus genus name, which is something you almost never see. Most of the time with paleontology, we have monospecific genera, meaning that there's just one species in the genus, and then we just refer to the genus name. Like we just say Ledumahati, that really cool new sauropod. We don't say Ledumahati mafube, which is the full name, the species name being mafube. So we usually just shorten it to the genus because a lot of times that's all there is to it. Or maybe there's one or two species. But in this case, there's so many species within Cetacosaurus, it might not be the best thing to just use Cetacosaurus or to put it another way, maybe we should split out some other genus from Cetacosaurus so that it doesn't refer to up to 18 <laughs> different species, because that's a little crazy. This also makes it really difficult to find information about the different species, because most resources also refer to dinosaurs by their genus, like us. And so if you search for Cetacosaurus, you just find a bunch of stuff about Cetacosaurus mongoliensis, or generalized statements about all 18 species. The only way to find stuff about a specific species is usually to go to like the primary literature and dig out, here's where they named Cetacosaurus major, and this is what they said about it. But if more research has been done since then, it doesn't always get updated and they don't always reference it. It's kind of problematic. This also came up with their phylogenetic analysis of the Cetacosaurus genus, because basically anytime you name a new dinosaur, you know, you have to show that it's not an existing species. That's kind of the whole point of systematic paleontology. And since Cetacosaurus is such a weird genus with all those species, when you do a phylogenetic analysis, you end up with this really large group with lots of branches all over the place. It looks more like a whole group of dinosaurs, like you're just looking at ceratopsians or something, rather than looking at a single genus. It's, it's very strange to see. And in their research, they only included about half of the genera that they consider valid in the paper, which is also something I don't think I've ever seen before. And basically they just included the five that were found in the Gobi Desert. They didn't include any of the ones that were found in China or Russia or perhaps Thailand, as Serena would say. <laughs> this ultimately led to a very strange statement in their paper that, quote, Amitabha is the most basal of the Cetacosaurus species included in the present study, end quote, which is really strange because some of the Chinese species have been classified as more basal in the past. So to say it looks like it's the most basal one in this study when there's previous literature showing that ones you didn't include are more basal, it's weird. So there's too much in Cetacosaurus. Someone needs to go through 
have fun with naming stuff and split out a bunch of do a genera because come on, it's too much. But we have another big-ish one now, and it's named Cetacosaurus amidaba. It's the moral of the story. There's a moral to this story? <laughs> I guess not a moral. The synopsis of the story. <laughs> In other news, Garrett mentioned earlier about a bunch of discoveries, all the summer digs and everything. Although this one happened by accident. So this one, a 10-year-old boy, Zhang Yangzhi in Guangdong Province, China, was playing and accidentally found a nest of 11 dinosaur eggs, which, <laughs> oh, that'd be so great. Find 11, not just one or like a little fragment of something. 11 eggs. Yeah. Well, he really likes dinosaurs and he saw a strange stone, he thought. And it's because he noticed this strange pattern on them. And he remembered that pattern when he saw something similar on dinosaur eggs when he'd visited a local museum. So good memory. And also a good case study and why it's important to have museums around dinosaur museums, because mm -hmm. otherwise he would have just thought it was a strange stone and moved on with his life. Yeah. He wouldn't have these 11 eggs to study. <laughs> yep. So these eggs, they're about 66 million years old, and they're now at the Huyuan Dinosaur Museum to be analyzed. Very nice. Then in North Dakota, Harrison Duran, a college student, found a triceratops skull while on a paleontology dig. So he went on this two-week dig with biology professor Michael Kelland from Mayville State University in North Dakota, who had found a triceratops skull in that area last year. So they weren't expecting to find another one, but here we go. So this one is nicknamed Alice the Triceratops. Alice is also the owner of the land, so it's named after her. And it took about a week to excavate the skull. I was thinking, this sounds really familiar, but then you mentioned that they just did that last year too, so. Well, there's a lot of Triceratops findings going on because we've got the one that's now at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. And if you visit, you can watch volunteers prepare the Triceratops in their lab. That's the one that was found in May on a construction site. The one that they said is definitely an adult Triceratops. So I'm very <laughs> interested to hear what comes out of this. That's an important one for the Taurosaurus debate. Yeah. But that one, there's no timeline yet on when the fossils will be ready to be put on display. There's one other big find recently. So thanks to Richard, who shared this one with us in southwestern France, near Cognac, a thigh bone of a dinosaur was found by French paleontologists. It probably belongs to a sauropod. Yay! It's <laughs> two meters long, 6.6 .6 feet. And once it's fully removed, they expect it to weigh 1,100 pounds or 500 kilograms. That does sound likely to be a sauropod. Mm -hmm. <laughs> a six foot long bone, not a lot of animals around that could make something like that. Yep. <laughs> So Ronan Alain from the National History Museum of Paris said that you can see, quote, the insertions of muscles and tendons and scars, end quote. And that's rare for that kind of fossil. Apparently, since 2010, more than 7,500 fossils have been found from 40 dinosaur species in this area. And this summer alone, they had 70 scientists working on excavating the site. Wow. Yeah. So a lot coming out of France. And last, in New York on Long Island, there's two new attractions that recently opened up at the WAC Lighting Hall of Science. There's dinosaurs and People's United Bank Animal Adventure. So the theme's to show how animals adapt and survive. So there's a 10-foot-tall Struthiomimus model with feathers. They've got a couple animatronic dinosaurs and other dinosaur skeleton models, as well as live animals. And apparently 90% of those live animals are either rescued or disabled, and they include owls, emu, and golden pheasants. So live dinosaurs, technically. Yeah, you don't hear a lot about rescue emus. <laughs> right. Everyone's always talking about rescue cats and dogs. 
rescue golden pheasants. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes they need to be rescued too. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a Brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. <laughs> Good for us as scientists. <laughs> mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Nigersaurus, which was a request from Lanasaur via our Patreon and Discord. And speaking of rewards as patrons, if you're a patron, then you get to request a dinosaur. So thank you. Nigersaurus was a Rubacosaurid sauropod that lived in the Cretaceous in what is now the Republic of Niger in the Earlhats Formation. It was quadrupedal and it had thick hind legs and a large tail. It was about 30 feet or 9 meters long with a short neck, only 13 vertebrae, and it weighed about 4 tons, which is similar to a modern elephant. Scientists have found a fossilized jawbone of a hatchling. Palsarino said that it was so small it could, quote, fit on top of a silver dollar, end quote. That is tiny. <laughs> Thank you. So it was lightly built with lots of air spaces in the skeleton. That means it was highly pneumatized. Describing a robacosaurid sauropod as lightly built. <laughs> it's like, well, I guess, relatively, yeah. <laughs> compared to other sauropods, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Nigersaurus, however, had a very solid tail, unlike most of the rest of the body. Its front legs were about two-thirds the length of the hind legs. And Nigersaurus was described as a Mesozoic cow. Seems to come up a lot. Anyway, Paul Serino has described it as something between Darth Vader and a vacuum cleaner. <laughs> He's also described it as a, quote, hammerhead shark with legs and a, quote, mesozoic lawnmower. And this is because of its teeth. Nigerosaurus had more 
than 500 active teeth in its mouth, maybe up to 1,000 teeth. And it replaced teeth about every 14 days, which is faster than most hadrosaurs. These 500 teeth were placed in 50 vertical columns, and the teeth were arranged in broad, horizontal rows at the front of the snout. And the area where its teeth were are wider than the rest of its skull. So if you look at, we actually have a Nigerosaurus toy, and it looks a little bit funny. Like, it's smiling really wide. The hammerhead shark, I think, is a kind of a good analogy, because it's so much wider in the front, and then it narrows behind it. But unlike a hammerhead shark, it's got teeth all the way across that. <laughs> it's not just eyes sticking out at the ends. Yeah. It's basically, like you said, a lawnmower or something. Yeah, Sereno also described it as a lawnmower, so all these things work. <laughs> Nigerosaurus' teeth were narrow and needle-shaped, and all the teeth were located far to the front of the mouth. It had a really broad jaw with a flat edge, and its snout was more broad than hadrosaurs. It had large nostrils, too, with the fleshy snout. Nigerosaurus may have had a keratinous sheath around its jaws, and it had a proportionately short snout. Its jaws were wider than the skull, but the jaws were lightweight, and they had a few fenestra, the openings. Nigerosaurus had weak jaw muscles, so it had a weak bite, possibly one of the weakest sauropod bites. Its jaw probably moved in up and down motions, and it would have gathered and sliced soft vegetation. It probably ate soft plants like immature ferns, horsetails, and angiosperms. Scientists think whatever plant it was was widespread, since both Nigerosaurus and the Iguanodontian Lurdosaurus were the most common mega-herbivores around in their time. Nigerosaurus was probably a low browser, and it ate food with its head close to the ground. So it probably kept its head down, though there's debate about this. Serino and others did a study in 2007, which found Nigerosaurus kept its head rotated about 70 degrees downwards, and this is different compared to the usual horizontal position of other sauropods. In 2009, Mike Taylor, Matthew Weddle, and Darren Nash found that Nigerosaurus could have eaten food with its head and neck at the 67 degree angle, but they did not think Nigerosaurus always kept its head at that angle. They found that modern animals have a wide variation of semicircular canals, which are not reliable to determine a head posture. In 2013, Jesus Marugan Loban and others found that Serino and his team's methods were imprecise, and Nigerosaurus probably kept its head horizontal like other sauropods. So, like I mentioned, a debate. Nigerosaurus had many hollow bones, including in the neck vertebrae. Jeffrey Wilson said, quote, The vertebrae are so paper-thin that it is difficult to imagine them coping with the stresses of everyday use, but we know they did it, and they did it well, end quote. Because of its light spine, it would have been hard for Nigerosaurus to lift its head much. Some scientists think that its vertebrae allowed it to have more range of motion, so it may have kept its head more horizontal most of the time. In 2017, Lucio Ibericu and others found that rabacosaurids had pneumatic skeletons to help decrease the amount of energy needed to move their bodies and decrease the amount of heat generated in doing so, so they tended to live in hot tropical and subtropical areas. Nigerosaurus, as I mentioned, the skull was small and also light. There were large openings, fenestra, and thin bones. According to Serino and his team, Nigerosaurus's skull was designed as, quote, maximum strength with minimum material. Hmm. <laughs> it's almost like cardboard or something. Doesn't look like it could support all that weight, but miraculously it does. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> Nigerosaurus had large eyes and it had a small size brain compared to its body. It had small olfactory bulbs, so even though it had a large fleshy snout, it didn't have a great sense of smell. The type species is Nigerosaurus taketi, 
The fossils were found in a 1965 to 72 expedition by Philippe Taquette. The fossils were described in 1976, but it actually wasn't named until 1999 after more fossils were found, and it was named in 99 by Paul Serino and others. Paul Serino and his team found more fossils in 1997 and 2000, and they needed more fossils to describe Nigerosaurus because the pneumaticity of the skeleton made the fossils much harder to preserve. So apparently some of the fossils in the skull were so thin you could see a strong beam of light through them. Oh, that's cool. You don't even have to do sectioning in order to put it under a microscope. Just put the whole skull under there. <laughs> True. That's that minimum material, maximum strength. Yeah. So the fossils are now in the National Museum of Niger. The genus name for Nigerosaurus means Niger reptile. And the species name is in honor of Philippe Taquette. Nigerosaurus probably lived in floodplains. It was one of the most common dinosaurs found in its area, and it lived among large theropods and crocodilomorphs. Serino said that Nigerosaurus was easy prey, especially for Sarcosuchus, a crocodiliform. Nigerosaurus also lived around the Iguanodontian Lourdesaurus and other herbivores, including Aranosaurus and theropods like Suchomimus. Other animals in the area included pterosaurs, fish, and sharks. And our fun fact of the day is that dinosaurs had crops in the early Cretaceous, if not even earlier. And this is because Hongshan Ornus and Sapi Ornus both have crops, and they're from around 120 to 125 million years ago, but they're not very closely related. So they might have a common ancestor that evolved it way earlier, like in the Jurassic, or they could have evolved it independently is also a possibility. And this is crops, a body part. Yeah, so crops are a storage pouch in the esophagus of a lot of modern birds. It's before the stomach. And both Hongshan Ornus and Sapi Ornus had crops with seeds in them <laughs> and seeds as gut contents. So the researchers, led by Xiaoting Zheng and published in PNAS, said, quote, in modern seed-eating birds, the crop provides storage so that a number of seeds can be gathered quickly and then processed later in a more secure location without interference from competitors and or predators, end quote. It sounds like spycraft or something. You're going to process the things in a secure location. <laughs> <laughs> Don't steal my food. Yeah. I guess it's like sort of like squirrels or chipmunks, like shoving stuff into their cheeks and running around with them, except instead this is a pouch that's in the throat. So it's a little bit weird to us since we don't have pouches in our throats, <laughs> but birds do. And then we all know that birds sometimes regurgitate their food. So it's sort of a similar type of thing. Although in this case, they're storing it to digest it later, which seems weird because I don't understand in exactly how keeping something in your crop is more useful than keeping it in your stomach because it still weighs the same. Why not just get it in there? It might just give you more space, I guess, so that you could store up some more and then you're not limited by the size of your stomach. But of course, birds don't just have stomachs. They also have gizzards. And these researchers also say, quote, the mucus in the crop softens hard seeds so they are more easily ground by the gizzard, end quote. So it's they have such this complex system going, not only with breathing, but also with eating. It's almost like multiple stomachs. You got the crop with a specific digestive step going on there, and then it goes into the stomach where it gets digested a little bit more, and then it gets to the gizzard where it gets all ground up. And I should point out that technically birds chew after they swallow. They also essentially chew after food goes through their stomach. <laughs> 
because the gizzard contains both the quote-unquote glandular stomach, which has the stomach acid, that's where that comes from, as well as the gizzard, which has the muscle and the stones used to grind up the food. But in practice, the food goes back and forth between the two pretty frequently because there isn't like a big separation between the two. So it gets ground up and then it gets shoved back in the stomach for a little more acid digestion and then back into the gizzard for some more grinding and back and forth it goes until eventually it's ready to get into the intestines. Another interesting thing is the researchers point out that a lot of modern birds have crops but don't eat seeds. So there's things like hummingbirds that just eat nectar and obviously there's no reason to store that in one spot or another. It doesn't need to be digested more fully somewhere but they still have a crop. But not all modern birds have crops. So things like ratites, the big ostriches and emus and things, don't have crops where they do eat seeds. So it's like, well, why did they lose their crop? It's kind of a weird organ that we don't have any other analogs for because it's just a bird thing and a dinosaur thing. So we don't know exactly when it started. It's possible that even something like Cetacosaurus had a crop because it's been found with gastrolis tons of times, like I mentioned, and it has a mouth that's reasonable for eating seeds. So who knows? Be interesting to find out though. It'd be kind of funny if a T-Rex had a crop and it's like storing animal parts in its esophagus on the way to the rest of the digestion. Yeah. It would help it to feed its little baby T-Rex. Oh, that's true. <laughs> Birds are weird. And on that note, that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to us so you don't miss out on any new episodes. And that's at patreon.com slash Thanks again, and until next time. Good day.